Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Syndicate Podcast, where we talk angel investing, VCs, and bring on some of the best startups in the world. Today we've got somebody, I think, who's pretty pretty awesome on the line, Shruti Gandhi. A lot of you guys may know her from AngelList. She's pretty big on there, runs a syndicate, runs, runs a VC. You've, you've got a ton of experience. Thanks for coming on today, Shruti. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate the kind words. So it's kind of hard to explain exactly what you do. You invest in enterprise tech companies. What what do you do? How do you tell people? How do you introduce yourself? What's your business card? Uh Well, um, I run a fund called Array Ventures. And the focus of the fund is to invest in enterprise deep tech early stage companies. So enterprise is anything B2B. Deep tech is anything AI, ML, autonomous, robotics, anything that's hard to build. And early stage is rounds that are typically under two, three million dollars. Okay, that's slightly more succinct than I put it. So you've been investing for a while. How did you actually get into this, though? It looks like you have quite a background with quite a few different funds. What's your what's your story? How'd you get into startups? How'd you get into venture? Yeah, uh, my dad's a serial entrepreneur, and uh, I was an engineer for eleven years. And then after that, I wanted to get into starting a company. So I started a company. Didn't know what I was doing, so wanted to learn about venture. Uh, switched on the venture capital side. And worked at a few firms. Some of the firms I worked at full time was Samsung, uh, where I helped. I was one of the junior folks that helped start the investing arm, and then worked at True Ventures after that. And after that, I am now uh, two years in into Array Ventures, which is my own firm. So that's my journey into VC. It's been about five to six years. What's it like as a junior at a VC firm? A junior at a VC firm? Yeah. How do you uh, how do you handle that? What's the relationship like? What's it like? Also, what's it like being a girl in what can be categorized as a stereotypically overly male world? Not that it should be, but it's just that it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, so junior was it depends on every firm as as uh, it comes, and different firms mean different things. The ver- the firm I was at, it was very they treated it very flat. So I was actually sourcing deals. I'm, I was on boards and, you know, my companies are getting acquired. But if you were at a larger fund, maybe you end up typically working with a partner. So it depends. I think every firm has a different experience. And then um, as a woman in venture, you know, there are a lot more folks that are coming up um, in, the, in the venture field as, that are women. Still not many enterprise investors at my stage, but... Um, you know, they're, they're often consumer investors, but still, I, you know, still many women are taking the leap of faith and, and making a name for themselves. But it is difficult. It is sometimes a very different. The operating styles for different genders are different. And I think the, the more important issue here is how do you create a trusted set of group of folks that you can lean in and learn from? Um, and that could be any, you know, any gender. 
often people are comfortable with their own gender. So that's where the discrepancy starts. And, you know, the deals that go from one person and, you know, um, that to another often tends to be, you know, men who had been working with each other for a while and women are just entering the field. So we're not on top of mind. So that's where a lot of the discrepancies come in. I think a lot of the problems also come up. So my wife and I recently started watching Silicon Valley and you can see a lot of the, you can see a lot of the themes, a lot of the stereotypes there, but I don't know. Do you watch the show? I do watch the show. Yeah. You know, Peter Gregory dies and he gets replaced by that girl. Yeah, of course. So they're essentially the exact same personality. And the male VC can kind of be a dick and be really aloof. And that's just kind of weird and eccentric. When the girl does it, it seems so much more mean. Do you think that there's there's some kind of double standard on genders when it comes to how people act that makes it harder for girls and women to be successful in VC? Yeah, women... Uh, it's studies have shown women are put to a higher standard and you know the same things that men can be doing women are labeled as being called aggressive or bitch you know women are often you know expected to kind of just go with the flow and not take charge but then when there is a woman taking charge i think people wonder and uh, you know start questioning the power so it is a, you know, it is a harder thing to kind of digest for some folks. But frankly, I've also worked and have investors of mine that are, you know, mostly men as well, um, just where society, you know, just where the state is. And they are the most amazing set of, you know, men that I know that have taken a leap of faith in, in me and invested in me. Um, and even syndicate leads, right? Like um, non syndicate leads, but syndicate investors such, such as yourself. I mean, we're having a conversation here, and you're one of my backers. And it's uh, you know things are changing. It's a little harder, but it's things are changing. But you have a yeah, it's a good observation you've made. Do you think there's similar problems with female startups versus male startups? I know traditionally male startups get more funding, even when they're less qualified. Yeah, I think it, but I think, I mean, there's two school of thoughts here. One is anyone that's solving a tech problem and, and with a real need succeeds. But then frankly speaking, women have different pitching styles. Confidence is not something they tend to exude that easily. And, you know, this is a, this is a confidence game. And uh, sometimes, I, not all the times, but People who, uh, you know, tend to be more confident, you know, people, you know, investors tend to follow them and their lead. So that's where the discrepancy comes in because you, you know, you have investors are not used to that style of uncertainty and, and playing devil's advocate, which is what a lot of women end up doing. It's like, if I were you, I would do this. If I were, you know, this and that, but a, but a typical example of, of uh, what people, have talked about that works as you walk into a room, you're confident, you're sure about where the world goes, you think everyone else should follow with you. And that's not how women generally operate. Women are more, more cautious in their communication, not cautious and risk taking, just cautious in their communication, because they don't want to set a bad example or, or be ethically coming across as not, you know, not uh, 
you know, basically not coming across as ethical. So it's like when any of those things kind of end up becoming a more gender issue. And I think more investors have to be mindful of different styles and look and dig beyond that to look at uh, business fundamentals. But it does get harder when you have no numbers and tractions and metric to prove and you're just asking to back you, you know, you, the founder. And when the founder is not exuding that kind of persona, which investors are not used to, that's when fundraising gets the hardest. Yeah, it's kind of that chicken and the egg problem. Before you have to have any, before you have anything, you kind of have to pretend like you at least have something to get enough traction and have enough of a vision where investors are going to get by, behind you so you can build something big. It doesn't happen otherwise very well. Yeah. So I want to I want to transition a little bit because you're not just a girl who's a VC. You're a VC that's doing very successful. You've done quite a few things, and I don't want to overshadow that. So you you were at Samsung, then you transitioned into True. What do you see? What's it like? The differences in venture and as an investor between a private and a public fund, or a corporate and a private fund. Okay, so the corporate um, and private funds. I've been on both sides. Huh? Corporate funds usually have a mission. The reason someone like Samsung will start a corporate venture arm is to kind of have a pulse in the market for things that are in their industry that they can, um, you know, maybe buy at some point, partner with some point, accelerate their own internal innovation by partnering with these companies. But so let me pause there for a second and then move to the, the institutional investors, which is they're financially driven. They have no other agenda outside of, you know, returning more capital back to their own investors, LPs. So corporates technically have that agenda as well, but they come with the other goal of finding partnerships and other uh, other non-financial incentives and synergies together. So there's a little bit of extra baggage, which makes it sometimes harder to run the fund? Yeah, it does. I mean, it makes it not not to run a fund, but to but also to convince a founder to take capital at a certain point. So as an investor, when did you start angel investing? Not just investing other people's money, but putting your putting your money where your mouth is. Um, I think I'm mostly investing still out of the fund. So uh, angel investing is me investing in my fund and then the fund making an investment in a company. And so that's what I usually end up doing. And then is all of your syndicate, is that just follow on and extra on top of the additional or on top of the fund you're running, Array Ventures? Most of them, yes. Okay, so I have a question. I know this isn't applicable to you, but this is something that someone brought up where you'll see a lot of times individuals that are at a at a VC, they're running their own syndicate, not via the VC, but just on their own. And there's a lot of conflict of interest between the LPs and the actual syndicate lead if you're getting carry on something that your LPs aren't necessarily getting in on. I know that's not something you're doing now, but what have you seen in the industry? They were talking a little bit about how AngelList was kind of playing loose and goose with letting people get away with things that traditionally would not be would not be doable. Have you seen have you seen thoughts? What are your thoughts on the industry? What are your thoughts on where this is all going? I'm sorry, I'm not sure what the question means. You mean What's the what's the question here? So, like, let's say I'm a VC or I'm a junior VC at NEA or anybody really, and I'm running a syndicate, not involved with the venture capital firm at all. So, I'm running a syndicate and then also a venture partner. So, I'm focusing on things that aren't 
delivering results for my LPs. So how do I decide where the investments go? How do I decide if I syndicate the deal or if it goes to the VC? Who gets, I see. Yeah. So I think oftentimes a VC firm has very clear rules around investing outside of the fund. And so oftentimes you can find and talk to other general partners or junior folks and say, hey, you know, um, and in some cases you can invest and let your partnership know and do it on the side if it's not fit for a fund. Or in some cases, you can just do that on the side, which is very rare, actually. Um, so if you're part of a proper venture capital fund, running deals outside of your of your um, firm is actually more of a taboo still. So I wouldn't say that that's really being encountered that much unless your, you know, your firm doesn't care and then, then it doesn't matter. Okay. Understood. So with with the investments you're making now, how are you getting deal flow? What are, what are you looking at? How are you getting companies? And then how are you picking through? Um, I think most importantly, we have built a platform at Array, which is podcasts, write-ups, blogs. Uh, we're covered in press often. So the the focus that we have, which is early stage enterprise deep tech, resonates with a lot of founders. And that's how we get a lot of our deals. Also, we work with a lot of other funds and angel investors who know our focus and send deals and include us in, in the deals they're investing in. How would you break down those splits? So you said podcast, blog, and then referrals from other funds. Any idea? So the first fund, yeah, the first fund, about 37, 40% of the deals have actually come from the Array platform. And we intend to increase that to more, you know, 80, 90% over time. Any advice to other investors and VCs on how they could do similar things to help their deal flow? Not exactly. I think everyone has their own edge and, and their way of going out and doing what they need to do to get a proprietary deal flow. That's what the VC business is about. How do you handle networking? I hate that word. I don't network. Frankly speaking, networking is an excuse to waste your time. I connect with people, like-minded people that I want to connect on a topic and tend to then go from there to see if the right folks on the topic I want to be you know, connecting on are in the room. Oftentimes, I put those events together. I don't go to that many events unless I know that there's something I, you know, specific I want to get out of that. But so I don't really network. But you're going to events and meeting people. I like that. Not viewing it as networking so much as just meeting interesting people. No, I don't think I'm meeting interesting people either. I'm meeting people I want to know or meet on a topic I want to meet on. Okay, so what would be an example of that? For instance, I, you deal a lot with deep tech, so I imagine you're working with quite a few universities. Would you be reaching out to professors in some of the in some? Sure, of the, I don't actually work with university. Often, my founders are very industry experts already, so they've been out of university for a while because they need enterprise experience. Anyone out of college will not know how to sell to you know a Salesforce or IBM unless they've been in the industry for a while. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't say universities is my primary source of deal flow, but what companies and engineers out of companies are. So those are the people I intend to, you know, what you call network with. But, but I don't, you know, I don't just kind of go to random events. I make it a more thoughtful exercise of finding those people in a room and just, you know, talking to them about deep tech or trends or, you know, problems they're facing versus just going to a, uh, open-ended networking event. So what do you look for in enterprise for traction? What is something that gets you excited? 
I think for me, it's uh, two things. Founders have to really have done it before, have the experience to do it before, uh, have the experience from before to do it again, and then they know how to sell. So the evidence is a big piece of, you know, one thing that is vision. The other thing is evidence. I've done it before. So the evidence has to go with the vision. And then um, and the stage has to fit with it, too. So as I said, the early stage is a very important piece there. And how are you seeing companies getting into enterprise in terms of their sales process? What's been effective for the startups you've worked with? Frankly speaking, um, they, these founders I invest in already know who their buyer might be before they even leave their jobs. And then from there on, they go to you know, talk to their friends who say they'll buy the product when the product is ready. So this is, they already come in with two, three, four LOIs, letter of intents, that if you build it, we'll buy. And then after that, we actually have our own customer network we connect them with um, and activate them there to see how they can take advantage of our you know, customer network. So oftentimes the array platform, the unique part about array platform is to you know, get connected to more customers. So how do... How do people use the Array platform, obviously, to get connected to other customers? But what's the value add in terms of why people get onto your platform in the first place? But that's exactly the reason. I mean, enterprise and selling to enterprise is hard. So you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want to just take money from investors that don't actually know how to do that and, how to not, and don't know how the go-to-market in enterprise works. So getting access to customers is the most important reason people, founders, want to work with Array. No, I understand that. But what I mean is, how are you convincing the enterprises to get on board? Oh, okay. Uh, we've been in the industry for 17 years. And so we've had relationships with all the top fortune, you know, thousands or even top a thousand startups um, and, and folks in the industry that because we've been, I mean, that, that's why investing in enterprise is hard because you can't overnight develop these relationships. And so someone like, you know, me and Array has been in the enterprise world for 17 years. And we've been across many coasts. You know, I've lived in New York, Chicago, Boston, and I'm here now in the, in the Bay Area. So it's a very, um, you know, curated network that's built over time. And same with funds. We work with a lot of enterprise funds. Sa- same thinking there. Developing those relationships with the funds don't happen over overnight. And so that's uh, the piece that is different. And frankly speaking, again, most funds out there are new. And a lot of those investors are new. Uh, there are some spin out funds, which is different, but a lot of these investors are new. And so, you know, having them, you know, having them start this enterprise process will take them a few years. So we have a we have a head start on that. Who are some of the better partners you're working with at the next stage? I'd rather not name one or the other, but, but a typical A, a firm that invests in enterprise, um, we work with most of them. East or West Coast? All over. All over. Do you see enterprise as being more successful in East or West Coast? West Coast, but I mean, there's more companies coming on the East Coast as well. It depends if there's retail, if it's, you know, finance. I mean, there's you know, mostly we focus on West Coast because our energies are uh, focused on events and workshops and things here. But um, East Coast, again, is also up and coming. 
So who are some interesting companies that you guys have invested in recently you're working with, you're excited about? We're, we've, uh, you know, invested in about 24 companies in this fund. We have companies such as Simility, that's a fraud detection company, OpenPrize, that is in the data orchestration space, Placer, that um, tracks human movement uh, data and helps retail. Same with, you know, View.ai, that's a computer vision company that helps retail with tagging, auto-tagging their products. So we, you know, it's mostly companies that are taking advantage, deep tech tech companies that are taking advantage of a problem that they think they can solve in a particular industry, which is retail, finance, you know, things as such. A lot of AI? I don't like to call it AI. This AI is a very generic word, uh, you know. What we call is that machine learning and you know deep learning, uh, vision, computer vision. It's, it depends on what problem they're solving. But yeah, I guess a general word can be an AI. Do you think it's overhyped? I don't like to comment on that anymore. Okay, fair point. Fair point. I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound, Shruti? That sounds great. What's the first deal you ever did? In company called um, well, there's I would say two. One uh, when I as a full time employee and. You know, as a part of a full-time investing role, I invested in a company called Ngrade. That was a personalized data learning content platform that got acquired by McGraw-Hill. And then before that, I invested, um, I was an intern at a fund called Highbar, where I helped them uh, with the diligence on investment in a company called Viata that got acquired by Brocade. Interesting. Who's doing better now? Who's doing, they're both acquired, so it doesn't matter. I know, but in terms of, okay, let's, let's put it this way. Which company do you think was more valuable to the company that acquired it? And both. I mean, I don't, they're apples and oranges. I wouldn't make that comparison. Okay. Okay. Dumb question. Worst mistake you've made to date? Uh, there are no dumb questions, by the way. <laughs> Just there's no real answer for that question. But what's the, what's the following question? Sorry, I missed that. No worries. What's the worst mistake you've made so far? Huh. This is a lightning round question. <laughs> this is a lightning round one. It's that you can go for it. You can go long. You can go short. It's up to you. <laughs> Where's mistake? Um, I wouldn't say there's one. I think a learning over time can be, you know, you have to act fast, and sometimes you have to build conviction fast. The process every firm has to decide on their diligence varies. Because uh, acting fast can be also hazardous to your decision making because you want to, you know, decide based on all the information you have. But then acting slow, you can also lose deals. So there's a good balance there. So it's not a mistake per se, but a learning that, you know, I've had over over the years. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. What's the what's the biggest company you've missed? I don't think I have uh, an answer for that. I mean, I've been so early in my career that, the, you know, I haven't seen the pitches that have come to come across you know, and that have made it that big yet. Because I mean, I don't do consumer. So the consumer pitches might have been different and I don't see them. But enterprise wise, a company they're still in making right now. That's how long it takes usually. Interesting. Do you think enterprise would have a typically longer life cycle than your traditional consumer, your traditional is enterprise? Is enterprise the longest out there besides possibly space? I don't think Space and, and biotech and those are just on a very different horizon. Enterprise is just more longer than, than consumer. Like Square went public in five years. 
And the fastest enterprise company that went public, I think, would have been like Salesforce in nine years. So just to kind of give you some context, I think, you know, so it takes nine to 12 years, usually for a company to make a meaningful return. Yeah, the sales cycles are typically much, much longer. Exactly. And it's usually a J curve. What's one piece of advice for investors you'd give? For investors? I mean, I'm, you know, humbled that you asked me. I think I should be learning from other investors, frankly, because this is a journey where some people have just done phenomenal. I don't know. I think the, the, there's no one piece of advice. It's you just have to stay at it and kind of keep fresh and be curious and keep developing your point of view on different markets. And that's what most investors do anyway. So I don't think it's a unique advice, but that's what I tell myself. Always be learning. Always be yeah, learning. Exactly. What, what field do you see dominating the next 10 years in exits and IPOs? Field, what do you call AI? I mean, it's just, I would say machines, this is a, this is a century where machines will make decisions. So companies that will enable other machines to make decisions so humans can do more useful things is where we're headed. And that can be applied in many, many industries. So I think it depends on, the, uh, on what's, what's happening over the next few years uh, with, with that. But we're ready. We have the data. We have the infrastructure. And now we're, we have to make those moves. Exactly. Artificial intelligence is always what we can't do yet. Because once we can do it, then it just becomes software. What's, um, <laughs> what's the biggest role or who's the biggest role model you've had in business to date? I think I have several. I think it depends on what we're tra- I'm trying to solve for. Frankly, like when I started my fund a couple of years ago, there were folks who were, I would say, I would call veterans who started, who blogged a lot. Folks like Brad Feld, you know, Fred Wilson, and, and, and people who just kind of shared their thoughts out there when not many people were doing that. And so today when I'm looking to have any questions around fund, term sheets, anything, I think there's content out there from these folks, which is pretty impressive. So I would say that that's what we try to solve for also in the content I'm creating on our own podcast array, which is how do I get, you know, advice on not just good, but like things that didn't work from, you know, founders of companies and founders of funds where uh, we, you know, we other founders and fund managers can learn from, from that insight. Um, so that's, uh, I would say that that's, I don't have one role model, but I, I learned from a lot of people in the industry and there's so many people to learn from. There are a ton of people to learn from. And the nice thing about this industry is it seems, it seems as if it's much more of an additive as opposed to a, a net zero, a net zero yeah. industry. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So back to you. So who are, who are some of the most interesting people you've had on your podcast? What are one or two episodes that really stuck out? Um, I have had folks like Justin Khan. He's, he was the founder of Twitch that sold to Amazon for a billion dollars. And, you know, he talked about all his companies and the journey he'd gone through and how one of his original company almost got acquired and then the offer didn't come through and people went quiet. And he, you know, people being really honest about their experiences are the most important kind of podcast because everyone talks about and and narrates a good story after the fact. But I think people who are able to still look back and say, well, you know, this didn't work out and here's why it didn't work out. Or Sean Burns from Flurry said, you know, they, they went insolvent almost three times. So those are the kinds of things 
but then, by the way, but then Flurry got acquired for close to $300 million by, um, who is it acquired by? I'm drawing such a blank right now. Is it Yahoo? I'm not sure on that one. Okay. I will find out. Yeah, by Yahoo. And then, so those are the kinds of folks we've had. We've had Esther Dyson, who talked about her journey on cancer and um, how she overcome them, detected it early on, and why she focuses on health investments. So we've had some amazing set of folks on there. Yeah, Esther is actually taking a break from a lot of the investment stuff and working on her own project. She's We're planning on having her on the podcast soon as well. But um, but yeah, she's been busy. What What's been the biggest challenge for you to date? You know, it's a business where you have to constantly fundraise. So that's, uh, you know, you have to always convince someone else to give you money. Founders forget that fund managers also have to go fundraise. And, you know, the results are not clear within one, two, three years, which is when you know, VCs always fundraise one fund after the other. So that's a, it's not a challenge per se, but it's a, it's a thing that, you know, constantly keeps you active and VCs are always in fundraising mode. So that's a piece that no one tells you about. And, you know, you, you have to love it. Otherwise this job's going to be very painful for you. Why a VC versus just running your own syndicate and then doubling down on that? Syndicate is not a very guaranteed way to get an investment, often backers have very different signals because the backers are not institutional investors and they, they're not permanent backers, right? So if there was someone who would say that, hey, this syndicate will always back you this much amount, then that's fine. But frankly speaking, that is not how it works. And then the second piece is the, you know, the actual fund management piece. When you have a fund, the deal, finding deals actually require a lot of marketing and you have to have a budget for that. But when these uh, syndicates run, there is no management fees in there, which ends up, you know, becoming a, you know, a problem because, you know, if you're running a fund, you have that dollars allocated to you. So then you can fly to New York for a diligence if you have to, or if, you know, it's not personal dollars, it's fund dollars allocated to find the best deals. And so those, no one's planning on getting rich from the management fees. That's, you know, that's the very common phrase out there. But at the same time, uh, if you're, you know, not able to do all, put all the right effort into finding all the right deals and being at the right venues to make all that work, hiring the right team to make this work, then, you know, it's a, then it's a, then it's a very much of a different game. Let's play devil's advocate. How much time do you spend, let's say, on a per year basis fundraising? <laughs> fundraising, I would say 90%. You spend 90% of your time fundraising and 10% looking at deals? And No. <laughs> you're constantly doing six things at one time. So you're doing all of the above and all your touch points have multiple, re- you know, intentions usually. So I would say 90% I'm doing everything. <laughs> so here, here would be the devil's advocate question. If you didn't have to fundraise and could double down that energy into your podcast or into other mediums to increase deal flow, could you build a syndicate to be more effective than a venture capital firm, in your opinion? Um, again, it has to be very, as I said, the allocations have to be in advance. That has not been the case with AngelList. There are some funds that are being formed, but they're small and you can only survive on them 
or do things on, you know, on them for, for a short period of time with the capital that's been allocated there. So over time, the platform will change and AngelList is working on making that those changes happen. But there's literally 100 cells you have to make for every deal, like for every backer you have. And anyone who has their own set of questions asks questions. And that's not how funds usually work. LPs are not interfering in your business. They decide you are the right person to make that decision. And then they blindly back you to invest in 30 some companies. So when that model changes, that's, you know, that's when you can say that I can, you know, say, okay, done. And we're just going to run all the marketing events and just find deals and, and be with it. But oftentimes that's not the case. I would say my success often comes from me putting out signals out there saying why Array is investing and then other folks, you know, understand what our marketing pitch is, understand what our focuses and strengths are, and then come in through that. But if I didn't have that capital, then everyone else is waiting for the next Sequoia to come in and back and then use that as a signal, which at that point, you know, you're not bringing the deal on AngelList anymore. So I would say that there is a contradiction there about how syndicates work today and what some of the tweaks that need to happen if you wanted to just make that your full-time way of deploying capital. I would agree with a caveat saying your syndicate doesn't have to be based on AngelList. It could just be, I know Calacanis now just runs his own syndicate through his own site. And obviously he has a massive audience, but um, it's also interesting to look at how some of this will be disrupted with ICOs and some of the recent, the recent crowdfunding, yeah. crowd equity stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say, let's say general folks can suddenly start getting into syndicate investing. Suddenly that makes the economics exponentially better if anyone can invest when you have thousands of people in a syndicate. Yeah, but that's, that's now, yeah, sure. So now you're saying you've focused all this branding and then you can get people on your personal brand to have invest in you. I mean, that also depends. It depends. I was just, um, just curious to play out the, play out the thought experiment. Shruti, I know, I know you're super busy. What's something we haven't talked about yet? You think that should be covered, whether it's something you learned in the last couple of days, you said something founders miss, it's something investors miss, it's something VCs miss. What's something that you think we should talk about now? Yeah, I think the piece that, you know, often is missed out on is the why, why an entrepreneur allows an investor to, you know, participate in the round, especially in the times when things are so competitive, and there's a lot of money out there. That's the piece that, and the reason why I started my fund when I was a founder, the help I needed wasn't available. And the right set of partners are important, be it a syndicate manager or fund manager or whoever it is. But getting those right folks involved at the early stages is very important. And I would say that uh, when you um, found Mr. Mr. and Mrs. or Miss Founder are thinking of um, starting a company in the enterprise deep tech space, think of us. Think of Array Ventures, guys. Where's the best place for people to connect with you, Shruti? Um, either on Twitter. Or my handle is at A-T-S-H-R-U-T-I or on LinkedIn. Find me and add me. And, uh, you know, as I said, our, the Array platform has done about 40% of our deals have come through that platform. And we are very open to um, connecting with the right founders through these mediums. So if you guys are running an enterprise startup that's doing some deep tech and you need some money, Shruti's the one you should talk to. She knows the people. She knows all of the connections and she can help you get into all of the places you need to run a big, bad enterprise business. (laughs) 
Thanks for coming on today, Shruti. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. I really, um, I really enjoyed it. And thanks for the awesome responses and helping, <laughs> hopefully helping out some enterprise founders and some investors interested in enterprise. Until next time, guys, it's, it's, it's time to go get back to work. Stop listening to the podcast. Go start building the business, finding the investments and making it happen. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.